Hi, I'm Joshua Gilo. And I'm Mary Weller, and this is the Truth Exchange Podcast. The unique podcast where we have conversations about worldview all through the lens of oneism and twoism. This lens is based on Romans 1.25. We've exchanged the truth of God for the lie, worship and serve creation, rather than the creator who is blessed forevermore. We've got two guests, but they're good actually regulars on the podcast. It's Dr. Peter Jones and Dr. Stephen Chavera. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi, guys. Great to be here. Good to see you all again. Today's discussion is going to be on the subject of gender and sexuality, concepts of gender, which sexuality is one issue, but it is a massive divisive issue today with enormous implications in the culture relating to family, relating, of course, is freedom of speech. Dr. Jones, you have written many, many, many articles on this, including books. We have talked about this before on, on various podcasts. And of course, people sometimes say, oh, no more culture war stuff. Jeff Ventrella said in the last symposium, he says, you may not want the culture war, but the culture war wants you. There's an article that came out in the USA Today that was titled, What to Do When Your Son Wants to Be a Princess for Halloween. And the hint is to have fun. The Biden-Harris administration in the White House just issued their first ever national gender strategy to advance the full participation of all people, including women and girls. This policy or strategy just came out after they awarded Dr. Levine, who is a man parading as a woman, the first female, they said, to serve as a four-star officer of the U.S. Public Health Service Commission. We live in times where the distinction between male and female has been blurred, if not completely lost. Let's get to the basics of what do we mean by male and female? Is there really a distinction? Are we equal? Is there something that we need to do to undo, to understand better maleness and femaleness? So let's start with the basics. Genesis 1, God speaking that he made the male and female after his image. Dr. Jones, what makes a male? A male. Well, that's a that's a profound question. I, a male is a human being to start with, like everybody else. So you're really asking the question: What is distinctive about maleness over against femaleness? That surely is the question, really. You're asking, right? Mm-hmm. And the Bible has lots to say about that. But to start with, the Bible wants to say that there is difference between male and female. I believe that's why maleness and femaleness are associated with the image of God. Now, God is not male and female, but God is three in one, and heterosexual marriage is two in one. So that there's a parallelism there of many and unity that I think is part of the image of God that we live out reflecting who God is as both multiplicity and unity. Hmm. That, to start with, is how we image God. So the other way is to respect distinctions between male and female, thus respecting the distinction between God and creation, which is what Romans 1.25 affirms so very clearly. There is a distinction between us and the Creator, So the male-female distinction is a created reflection of that fundamental distinction, which I call twoism. Indeed, I would argue that the universe is fundamentally twoist, and thus male and female 
is an expression of that tourist reality. The reality of male and female and what sort of distinguishes those categories. And one thing, I mean, it's, 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 it's almost a kind of philosophical question. And I, I think the Bible can give insights into very speculative philosophical questions. But at the end of the day, the Bible isn't very, it isn't a very speculative abstract text that tends for the most part to be very concrete. Um, and when you go back to yeah the you know Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two, um, th there are at least two kinds of distinctions between uh, male and female, and, and one is sort of the creation origins of the two, and another is arguably sort of the the functions of male and female, and there are other differences that come along. So the very first we see that well one thing that male and female have in common is that they are both created by God and bear God's image. So there's something they have in common. But uh, when you sort of keep reading, you see that uh, Adam is made from the dust and Eve is made from Adam. So there's immediately a, a kind of a difference in their, uh, in their creation origins in that respect. Uh, but then you go on and you see other things which we'll probably discuss later in terms of a distinction between male and female or ex exactly what that means. And, and certainly uh, this brings us to uh, questions of male headship and, and women uh, created as, as helpers and things like that. So there are, as well as what we might call um, differences in the sort of essential nature of men and women, there are all, those lead to sort of functional role-playing differences uh, as well. And from a purely biological point of view, if you were to define a, a male, you would generally define it in, I mean, you could, you could define it sort of from a chromosomal point of view, XY chromosome, uh, female XX chromosome, but you would also define it from the point of view of reproduction, that the male uh, supplies the seed. And, and so the male is sort of what many biologists would say is sort of active and then the, the woman sort of fertilizes the seed and the woman receives and so you know there are many ways to 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 look at the difference between male and female but i think the important thing probably to, to kick this discussion off is that there actually is such an objective reality as male and female they are declared by god uh, they are declared by uh, the writer of Genesis, male and female, he created them, and they are reaffirmed by Jesus. Have you not heard God created them male and female? Uh, so that's probably, as strange as it sounds, the Bible affirms that there is such a thing as male, there is such a thing as female, and they are different. I think that that's really wonderful, Stephen, because everywhere you look in creation, you see male and female. And so we tend to ask this question sometimes, I think, within the culture currently, as though it's something that, you know, we choose, uh, that it has to do with identity. And, and in some ways, almost as though it's unique to humanity. Mm -hmm. um, but what we find is that throughout creation in anything that is living just about, I mean, there are some small exceptions to the rule, but you have male and female. Yeah. So you were talking about just even the act of reproduction and Joshua and I were discussing, how do you communicate these differences to your children? My kids have always known that 
even in a squash plant, like in a pumpkin plant, we're growing pumpkins right now, uh, this time of year that a female flower immediately has a structure of there's a little pumpkin on the end of it. And the male flower doesn't have that. It's just on a stem, but the male flower has a stamen that is dropping pollen everywhere. You know, the pollen is just getting everywhere and the female flower literally is receiving that fertilization in order to form that fruit. And if it doesn't happen, then no fruit forms. You're right that it just is. I I find a little bit of a frustration in these questions of, well, what is a male and what is a female? Because it, it seems like just asking the question gives something up to (laughs) give something up to the culture, because I think that that's, it's very, very clear. It's only when you get to humans and human identity that we start asking these questions. Yeah. And some of the questions are always couched in or clouded in what media would say, this is a social construct, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, Boys playing with GI Joe and liking the color blue. That's a social construct. Girls liking pink and playing with dolls and playing house. That's a social construct. And we need to be rid of those social constructs to liberate mankind. Well, we shouldn't even use the word mankind, humankind to a better in tunement with the cosmos and reality, this androgynous type of, mm. of spiritual awakening that comes only with the liberation of sexuality. When we talk even about those stereotypes, we still are, we're getting ahead of ourselves because there is still boyness and there is still girlness. A- aside from any of the cultural stru- constructs, you still have to deal with that biology. And then you can talk about stereotypes. Yes. Well, why are there stereotypes? There are stereotypes, not because we all fit in these uh, constrained little boxes that you know we, especially as biblical Christians, get accused of forcing everyone into, but be- there are stereotypes because there are commonalities within the absolute binary of male and female. So I just, I, I, again, the question, even as we begin to discuss it, it, it's like we pass over the biology as though it means nothing. Yeah, I think um, as uh, Stephen was pointing out, if you begin by establishing male and female difference in the Mm -hmm. creation, then we perhaps should stick with that for a little longer. Mm -hmm. Uh, Scripture in uh, Genesis 2, 18 says, it is not good that a man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That's a programmatic statement. It's not about psychological loneliness, by the way. It's not good in the sense that Adam is given a role in the culture Mm. to multiply and fill the earth. And that's why Eve is the helper because she will bear the children that will allow the allow humanity to keep reproducing itself. So the goodness is God's seeing the goodness of the reproduction of humanity, which therefore places before us the fundamental issue of maleness and femaleness for human survival. Mm-hmm. Mm. And if yeah. we take that, If we don't take that seriously, we'll all be wiped out sooner or later. Right. And that's why God didn't make another man for Adam. Exactly. Yeah. He he didn't make him just a helper who could help get the chores in the garden done. Oh, no. Literally fit for him. Well, his cultural mandate to fill the earth. 
Yeah. And Peter, so in chapter two, forgive me because I'm, I'm forgetting the order. Is he told to fill the earth before Eve is created? No, that's just the command. Yeah. Okay. Command of what Adam should do, but he can't do it if Eve is not created. Correct. Mm. And Stephen, you were going to say something. Oh, well, I mean, there's, yes, a, a, a lot there to sort, to sort of pick up on. I mean, I, I think it's worth even asking ourselves, even just how has it actually culturally, historically come to a point where for some people out there, it would be something of a revelation to say that they're, that, that, that male and female are not just made up categories. They're not just social constructs but they are objective reality. I mean, one thing I was going to say earlier is that these debates on male and female are not debates that scientists have. Scientists don't have a problem uh, talking about male and female. And generally speaking, they don't have a problem identifying male and female. These debates, so these debates aren't occurring in science departments. They're occurring in different kinds of university departments and seeping through to the culture. So you know, how is it that as a culture, you, you can go onto a university campus now and ask a whole bunch of students, uh, do you think there's an objective distinction between male and female, or is it all just a social construct? And not all of them, but a lot of them will, will say, no, it's all so- just a social construct. H- how did we get this confused uh, culturally? Uh, when did it start to happen? I think it started to happen in recent times with the invasion of Eastern spirituality. Um, I came over to the States in the 60s, and that was right at the moment of the Cultural Revolution. And I didn't know what was happening, but I did hear students talking about, for the first time I'd really ever heard of it, homosexuality. and. Uh, it struck me as odd, but as I began to study Eastern spirituality, I realized that in Eastern spirituality, there is no creator. We are all just matter, spiritualized matter. And so is there any givenness to who we are? And I think that's what Moses was speaking to the pagan world around him that, hey, here's some good news. God created us male and female. There is a way to act in this world that is useful to the world. In fact, is absolutely essential to the world by which we will all survive. So I do think this was even part of Moses's gospel. Now, the first part of Moses' gospel is in the beginning, God. The pagan religions of that day did not believe in a God who was a creator separate from the creation. They believed in matter as divine. And so Mm -hmm. Moses was actually speaking an incredibly uh, eye-opening, amazing statement about the nature of reality. So there is a God separate from nature, but then there are human beings separate from one another in male and female. So I just see this whole text of, of Genesis at the beginning as a, a massive, mind-blowing statement of the gospel in, in a certain kind of 
what you might call um, creational form. Oh, I, yeah, I've been reading Genesis a lot over the last 12 months. Uh, this is really just a by-the-by comment, Peter. It's just that uh, I, I just find the book absolutely mind-blowing, especially the first uh, sort of three chapters. It is just unbelievable and yep. um, inexhaustible treasure trove of insights into how the world works and how we as human beings work and how we, we relate to one another as, as male and female. It is just, I'd encourage anyone out there to, to, to really spend a lot of time reading through, particularly the, the early chapters of Genesis. I, I see it as sort of the classic of classics, the, the book from which all classics of, of certainly the Western canon have come. It's, yeah. it's just mind blowing. I agree entirely. You know, the first word of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, is the first word, everything else is commentary. The importance of that creator-creation distinction, I have found a beauty in those first three chapters of Genesis that I had, I had never seen before. And the first taste I got of that was reading your Cracking the Da Vinci Code book where you took Dan Brown to task for his presentation of how Christians throughout the centuries had treated women and really said, well, let's step back and really look at how scripture handles women. And so here I was in my twenties as someone who had grown up in the church as a female who really didn't have an answer for some of the misrepresentations that had been made in that book, the Da Vinci code. I remember, I remember where I was sitting. I remember the apartment in Carlsbad I was in where I was reading your words. And I now know that Rebecca had some say in that too, um, but thinking, this is amazing. Look at who, who I am as female and re-encountering that joy as I was prepping for the conference last year, as we were, I was prepping to talk about transgenderism. And I really wanted to look at those first three chapters to see the beauty of who we are as human, but then just the marvelous design of male and then the cherished place of, of female, like the, the cherished place that I hold as a female within this lovely design of God's, that really has come through for me. So I second Stephen's encouragement of people to, to spend time in those first three chapters and to like you just said, Peter, after that first sentence in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Look at the beauty of that commentary in those next two and a half chapters or two and three quarters chapters. It's, it's wonderful. It's not, a, it's so liberating and beautiful. I meant though, uh, everything else, namely the whole Bible <laughs> yes. is a commentary <laughs> of that line. <laughs> yes, I did get that. I was just keying in on the first three chapters. All right. <laughs> It's interesting, though, the Gospel of John, which is dealing with the New Testament and, and really of the doctrine of salvation, begins, in the beginning was the Word. Yeah. And Word yeah. is the creative logic behind everything. And so Genesis 1 begins, and God said, in, in John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. So we have fundamental agreement in the Old and New Testament as to the intelligent design of creation made by the Creator, who is distinct from us, and really made everything in an intelligent way, especially males and females. And it's important to, to note that that the Bible is 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 very big on on order and distinctions. 
mm-hmm. uh, in a way that modern culture has sort of a, sort of abandoned. And, and one of the, the hallmarks of, of sort of postmodernism, that sort of philosophy that sort of started really strongly, I mean, you know, it has its origins. You know, you could, I mean, it's where do its origins go back, you know, arguably to the 19th century, arguably earlier, but that really starts to become quite powerful uh, from the 1970s onwards. And, and postmodernism, with its suspicion of any claims to truth, that's right, and its suspicion of really any claims to knowledge, also has a suspicion of any claims to sort of definitions. And so postmodernism wouldn't like to talk about femininity and masculinity. It, it, it has this obsession, this fetish almost for putting an S on the end of every word. So it's got to be masculinities, femininities. Yeah. <laughs> um, that, that is not what the Bible is about, which doesn't mean that the Bible has a simplistic or sort of con- or, or overly sort of constrictive understanding of male and female but again i suppose just to to sort of put our points negatively just for the sake of absolute clarity if someone says that male and female maleness and femaleness are just social constructs and that they're sort of infinitely malleable they can be whatever we want and nothing um no that is wrong that is incorrect that is unbiblical that is not how God thinks, and it's not how he creates, uh, just to make that point very clear. And anyone who, who really sees these things purely as social constructs uh, has been more affected by what we might call a kind of postmodern spirit of the age. And there are many spirits of this age. Postmodernism is just one of them. They've been more affected by that than they have been uh, by scripture, and frankly, than they have been by their eyes and, and their experiences. Because again, you know, you don't need to rely on scripture, and, and probably this is an important point to make. You actually don't need to rely on scripture, and, and anyone can correct me if I'm wrong. I'm happy to be corrected to know that there is such a, 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 an objective reality as male and female. These are things that are just evident to our our natural reason as human beings. To, mm-hmm. to underline what you're saying, Eastern spirituality believes that matter is an illusion, just as Gnosticism did. But if you're in Mumbai and a truck is coming at you out of control, you jump out of the way. Yeah. Matter is not an illusion at that moment. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Peter, it's interesting that you had, when Stephen asked, Um, when did this conversation culturally start about um, male and female and sort of the blurring of those distinctions and you put it in the in the 60s and the cultural and sexual revolution there with the the coming in of eastern mysticism I immediately then think of um, the effort within yoga um, the ultimate effort for samadhi, which is when all distinctions are obliterated. And so their version of kind of like heaven, not that they have a heaven, but of bliss is to have all distinction blown away. And so then within, um, yogic practices, and I, and I think within, um, like the religious priesthoods, you see an admiration for androgyny, um, and you see a blurring of those distinctions and, and um, cross-dressing and different things like that as spiritual. That's right. Um, 
so there's something to that, you know, that as we accepted that, yeah. yeah. I wrote a whole essay on that subject following the famous Romanian scholar Messe Eliade, who studied ancient paganism from the second millennium BC. And he shows through all those expressions, east and west, north and south throughout time, that very often the pagan cultus has as its high priest, a homosexual. Mm. And he talks about, um, what's the word? Androgynous spirituality. Yes. And that means you see that paganism wants to eliminate distinctions. Mm-hmm. And so even in its sexuality, paganism is making a fundamental statement about the nature of the world, that there are no ultimate distinctions because ultimately God is not distinct from the world. Mm. And so we have to live out the unity of ourselves with God and not obey distinctions. Mm -hmm. And it's very interesting, you know, uh, those two forms of sexuality express that homo means the same and hetero means different. So you have in the very notions of sexuality, a, a statement about the nature of the cosmos. Are things distinct or is everything the same? Which is mm-hmm. what Paul is saying in Romans one twenty-five. Mm-hmm. It all comes down to the same issues. Can I just quickly pick up on something that Peter said? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I wasn't checking my Instagram likes when I was looking at my phone <laughs> earlier, but I'm sort of Peter sort of saying that a lot of this creeps into popular culture in the 1960s with Eastern mysticism. I immediately thought of a song, uh, and, and most of us here would, would know it, Lola by the Kinks. Yes. Uh, and I thought now Lola, that, that, that's either you know, very, very late 60s or extremely early 70s. Well, I Wikipedia it, it was 1970. But my mind immediately went back to that line in Lola, which um, I think is um, uh, girls will be boys and boys will be girls. It's a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world. Wow. Except my Lola. And, and that, that song, yeah. which sort of comes out in 1970, perfectly encapsulates what, what Peter was saying. And I'm a great believer in, in, in order to understand culture, listen to pop songs. I think pop songs are, yep. are a brilliant way to understand culture. Um, but um, that song perfectly captured, boys will be girls, girls will be, will be boys. It's a mixed up, muddled up, shook up world. It's mm-hmm. just like there's no order. Everything sort of seeps into everything else. This mm-hmm. is that and that is this. A is A and not A, that kind of thing. So you can just see that by 1970, this message is being sort of pumped oh, out through the airwaves yeah. to yeah. millions upon millions of people who, of course, then go on. They go on to be the academics. They go on to be the journalists. They go on to be the school teachers. Um, and sort of the rest is history. Well, I hate to sort of take over the conversation, but uh, in my book, The Other World, The Other World View, I have a whole chapter on Carl Jung and his influence on the 60s. And uh, Carl Jung is committed to getting rid of distinctions. The uh, conjunctio oppositorum must uh, happen. The joining of the opposites must go. And so he um, 
he's in favor of the circle. He loves circles, uh, the mandala. And of course, the influence on that is now we have labyrinths in churches. And we celebrate the fact that there are no distinctions between the animus and the anima, the male and the female and human beings. So all of this was developing through Eastern religions and Jungian psychology that was extremely powerful among the intellectuals in the 60s. And they, they went along the same lines, but Jungianism sort of pretended to be scientific and the intellectuals wanted that. Though Jung actually said that his work was not ultimately scientific because he knew he was having spiritual experiences with the occult. As the scriptures argue for androgyny, and I'm seeing a, there's a rise within a Christian feminist movement that are using Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, which says there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Yeah. Um, you make of that, Josh. You can throw it out. Can you explain it? I can, but I was going to see what you were going to say. <laughs> <laughs> oh, can, can I speak, speak to that first? I mean, Galatians uh, chapter 3, I'll take yeah, from, from 26 to, to 29. That's, that, that's not making a statement about sort of the, the, sort of the nature of it's not making a direct statement about the nature of male and female. And it's not saying that, that male and female are going to be obliterated um, in any, I, I don't, I don't like using technical terms, but I'll import a term um, ontological sense uh, ontology being um, the essential being of something. Um, what Galatians 3, uh, 26 to 29 is clearly saying is that, all who you know, trust in Christ, all who are parts of the true church, all who call upon the, the name of Christ and are saved, are heirs, are heirs of the promise. Uh, it's, really, it's really talking about everyone uh, receiving the fruits of salvation in the right. same way um, that a, a firstborn son uh, receives um, the birthright. And, so, and when you read the whole thing, it's clear that it's, 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 it's basically talking about us being, being heirs um, of God. You, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So that's, that's what it, it, it's saying. It's certainly not some kind of androgynous spirituality. And, and we know that you know, it, it's interesting that you know, in the book of Revelation, it says here sort of neither Jew nor Greek. In the book of Revelation, though, it talks about sort of people from every nation being in heaven. So there is still going to be some kind of diversity in heaven. We don't exactly know what the nature of it will be right but to suggest that this is in some way uh teaching sort of the ultimate obliteration of of the sexes or um 
it's simply not in the text at all. Uh, And the text makes it very clear what it's talking about. It's talking about us all being um, heirs of salvation. If you applied the principle of androgyny, what would it mean to be both a slave and free? (laughs) That's absolute nonsense. You either are a slave or you're free. So Paul is not using an androgynous mixing to justify what he's saying. So I just agree with what you said. But it, it's silly to do it in terms of uh, slave and free and Jew and Greek. So it's clearly not the case to do it with male and female. It seems like you just have to take that verse completely out of context to try to cause it to say any of the things that people are trying to make it say. Um, Because as you read the flow of his arguments, it's very, very clear that, I mean, because isn't it right earlier on that he talks about having had to address Peter's having withdrawn from eating with the non-circumcised crowd. Um, So he's, there's a very specific kind of, equality that he's talking about. Um, and it just reminds me of conversations that I have with my girls as we're reading scriptures to remember that, you know, we too are heirs. And that was scandalous, uh, that we as women were, were treated as beautifully as we are given the culture of the time. And so don't be offended by the words sons. Don't be offended by these things because, you know, through Christ, all of us are included as heirs. And so, I don't know, it just, um, it robs some of the beauty of, of what he's saying to try and turn it into a feminist argument. But, and very clearly, Mary, you you sort of point out right at the beginning, these verses cannot be used as an argument against, against, uh, uh, differentiated sex, if you like, because right at the beginning, he says, you are all sons of God. You are all sons. Yes. Uh, And so he makes it so that, of course, that means male are sons, female are sons. And of course, that indicates, as you just said, that, yeah, he's talking about a kind of status, uh, a status of being worthy to receive the inheritance. Um, He doesn't say, you are all androgynous children of God. It's it's right. very clear, sons. And then he ends again with the idea of the heir. So as you said, Mary, you know, you've clearly got to come to these verses with a prior agenda mm-hmm. to read anything like the kind of spiritual androgyny into this. And I, and I have actually heard sort of apologists of transgender ideology sort of almost read that into those verses, but it, yeah. it, it just can't be done biblically. No, no, it can't. And I would say even, you know, as as parents, um, I don't know if everyone would agree with this, but I've had one of my girls, I can't remember which one, but he said, well, why couldn't they just say sons and daughters? And my response was, well, because in the culture at the time, daughters didn't inherit. And his, his point was that we were the inheritors of a blessing. And so we get to be called sons too. That's actually, it's not leaving us out. It's an inclusion that is beautiful. Um, Mm -hmm. so I just think it's important to equip our girls to understand the beauty of that, Mm -hmm. um, rather than, I I don't know, I've seen some translations that say like sons and daughters, they'll try to add add that inclusive language. And then I think that you lose some of the beauty of what Mm -hmm. he's saying in the first place. 
Josh, how did we do with that answer? Oh, spot on. Stephen did you're a great gonna, job. You're not going to add anything? No, no, not at all. Stephen, you were na- shaking your finger at points. Well, so. I, I was shaking my finger just recently to something that Stephen was saying because you know, in these in the text throughout the the Old and New Testament, you hear LGBTQ side A pro pro gay identity and Christianity would say, "Well, look." Men can be brides. Look, <laughs> daughters can be sons. Therefore, wow. this, this, therefore, the scripture is pro this gender blurring, and uh, it's 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 a total distortion. Yeah. It's a to, it's a and it's a total misunderstanding. And, and Mary and Stephen, you, you guys both nailed that. So, and Stephen, going back to verse twenty four again, it's all it's that text of Galatians is deeply rooted in the promise of the seed of Abraham. Mm. We have touched on the issue of teleological differences and the, the purpose of what is the male and the female for the cultural mandate. Is it significant in the order that the male and female was made? Let's talk about male headship. Why couldn't it have been Eve made first? Which then would feed into the question of, is it significant that Christ had to be a man? When you use the word teleological, what are you meaning? For purpose of function. So what is what is the goal? Yeah. Like ultimate purpose. Right. So men, women become husband and wives, husband and wives become fathers and mothers, fathers and mothers produce sons and daughters, sons and daughters become brothers and sisters. Right. It's teleological and it's pointing to to there's a purpose and a function. Was there a significance to the order in creation of man being made first? And then from man came Eve. Dr. Jones, you mentioned in your book, Who's Rainbow, which if you've not bought the book, Who's Rainbow, you need to go to the Truth Exchange website and get it because it's excellent. Who's Rainbow? You mentioned the significance of Eve and you use a, there's a Hebrew word for, for Eve as being a helper. Could you expound on that significance? Well, I indicated that earlier that Eve is the helper is because she's the only one that can bear the children that assure the survival of humanity. So that's a fundamental helping role. As God says, it's not good for men to be alone, referring to man's call to be someone who protects and uh, makes the civilization proceed. So that's his calling, and Eve is fitted perfectly into that calling as the one who bears children and who mothers them just as Adam fathers them. So these are two distinct roles, as Stephen pointed out, but they beautifully harmonize together in being able to assure civilization that it will have a future. And You know, as we talk about our own personal needs, sexual needs, we forget the civilizational issues that are at stake. We've got thousands of people in Glasgow trying to figure out whether the planet is warming or not. But how many people, as they think about sexuality, think about the survival of civilization at that most fundamental level? And I think that Seeing the distinctions here places what the Bible is teaching in a profound and uh, essential way of thinking. 
it, it seems to me that there, there, there is immediately status with Adam in being the first created human being. There's, there's a kind of status that went with that. And I think that that probably is inseparable from the fact that Adam was a man. Um, Adam is sort of functions as the head of the human race. He functions as the head of the human race. This is reaffirmed, certainly in the New Testament. Should we be ashamed of that category of, of male maleness being related to headship? Uh, not at all. Uh, and, and I mean, we might discuss it in, in a later podcast, uh, but no, certainly not. I mean, as, as Christians, as biblical Christians, we should not be ashamed of it at all. Quite the contrary, we should honor it uh, because it is part of God's creation. But it's just taught all through the Bible. You know, male headship is taught all through the Bible. It's reaffirmed in the New Testament. The first created human being was going to be the head of the human race and the one upon whom responsibility falls for the future of the human race. It makes perfect sense that the first person would have been a male. Well, so can I ask, because it because God creates male and female in his image. Right. And it's only once the female is created that God says then that creation is very good. So, right. So in that first chapter, now he does speak of himself in male roles. He does refer to himself as father and Christ as the son and you know, when he takes on flesh, he takes on male flesh. So I think there's something to what you're saying, but he does create them in his image, male and female. So there's something about femaleness too. Mm. I think that that's right. Speaks to who God is ultimately. Right. It's, it is in there and that it's reflected in that image, but, but it is interesting though, that it, he begins with, with male yeah. And and Christ, uh, Adam, as a representative of the human race. Right. So there is that hierarchy mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. a male maleness represents all of humanity, both f- male and female. Christ as second Adam comes. Right. He didn't come as as a woman. Right. Jesus, the second person in Trinity now for all eternity is a man. And he is a representative of of the new creation and so there's an authority thing there's There's, an authority thing there's an authority thing that's my theological term you guys you're welcome there's a a headship and and representative and representational element to all of this right Um, and so to, to get to josh's sort of second question uh did christ did the messiah is probably a better yeah did christ have to be male and the answer is yes. Yes. Uh, given uh, the rest of creation, given where the creation and, and redemption narrative begins, uh, Adam representing the human race and yet plunging the human race into sin and fallenness, if there was going to be a redeemer uh, of the human race, then whoever that was was going to have to be a, a second Adam, a second representative of the human race to redeem um, the human race. And therefore that uh, redeemer had to be male as well. And so, yes, yeah. I would say it's, it's, in some ways it's, it could be more, more obvious that 
the redeemer had to be male than that the first human being had to be male uh, but the first human being was the head of humanity the representative of humanity and uh, was male and therefore the second the second adam had to be male as well because it assumes that office of headship i don't know whether this is helpful or not but stephen we were talking about the necessity for adam to be male and I guess where my mind goes is that God, as the authoritative creator, is creating humanity with a purpose. And part of the purpose of the first is to have that authority. And therefore, he had to be male. Yes. So rather than it reflecting back onto God, God's purpose is reflected in man, the authority, and then in creating woman, the, complete, the completion of his image. Is that fair to say, Dr. Jones, the completion of his image then is female, now male and female, he has created them in his image. But yes, it had to be the male who was created first because he was created for the purpose of the authority that God gave him. That makes does that sense. help? It does. <laughs> okay. Next week on the Truth Exchange podcast. Then raises the question, why does this authority, why does this headship have to fall onto the male? Why couldn't it have fallen onto the female? If we didn't have the text of scripture, even within the created order, you'd have to look and say, well, man was made first. And there is, yeah. a, there is a natural hierarchy to that as far as leadership. That's why Christ had to be a man was patriarchy. This concludes the episode of the Truth Exchange podcast. Be sure to drop us a line. Let us know what you think of the program or things that you would like to see addressed. This program is listener-supported and only made possible through the contributions of friends like you. 